In this episode of 9 to Y Talks, Richard Gere talks with best-selling authors Daniel Goleman and Richard Davidson about their new book, Altered Traits, Science Reveals How Meditation Changes Your Mind, Brain, and Body. They reveal the truth about what meditation can really do for us, as well as exactly how to get the most out of it. The conversation was recorded on September 5th, 2017, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Well, hello. Uh, look to see who's out here. Yeah, a lot of white hairs out there. Yeah. Welcome. <laughs> um, this is a great honor for all of us to be here tonight. And, um, you know, I, th I consider myself an old friend of 92nd Street Y. And I've been here on many different occasions with movies and, and otherwise. But this, this is a kind of a special one tonight. Um, one, you're not going to meet two nicer, smarter people in your life than these two guys. And there are two guys that I've known a long time. Uh, Richie Davidson, not really well, but we've known each other a long time. Dan Goleman is one of my closest friends. And, and I learned more in this book about him than I have in 30 years. <laughs> I'd love to start you know, the discussion here. Just to, to, one of the beauties of this book is that they're incredibly self-effacing with great humility about how they started thinking about these things and how they started as, as students at Harvard and how it took over their lives and got to this point. I'd love to just hear, what was that first impulse that started this thing rolling for you guys that led to a, this extraordinary friendship and the wisdom that is in this book? Well, uh, for me, it started in college. I don't know if you know this, but I started to meditate because I was anxious, like an undergrad, you know? I was yeah. uptight. And I found it relaxed me. Uh, I did it twice a day, morning, prepared me for the day. Afternoon, I took a nap every time. I couldn't get Who was it? What kind of meditation was uh, it? I started with TM. Yeah. It's a great beginning practice. When I got to Harvard, I was lucky enough to get a pre-doctoral traveling fellowship to India. And uh, I, I was really interested, since I was studying clinical psychology, which is the most downer thing you can study. It's like, you meet someone, like, what's wrong with this person? And I, and I uh, went to Asia, I went to India, and I met people who were off that map. Yeah. One of them was a uh, famous yogi, Neem Karoli Baba, who was Ram Dass's guru. He was extraordinary, he was loving, he was super present. And when you were with him, you felt like you loved everybody too. That was magic. Mm. And I met Kunu Lama, who was this very humble, a uh, Tibetan monk in Bodh Gaya. This Kunu Lama is a very, very famous Lama, and he's famous for being the most humble of the humble. <laughs> and there was a story of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, coming to Bodh Gaya to teach, and there's a long entourage, and people were lined up for a quarter of a mile to see His Holiness. And out of the corner of his eye, he saw this very humble, humble monk way in the back, and he broke the crowd and came over and started doing prostrations himself to Kunu Lama. He's that extraordinary of a man. Kuna Lama became the Dalai Lama's teacher on compassion, Shantideva. And to this day, he'll acknowledge Kuna Lama. So I, I met people like that, and I came back to Harvard. I said, hey, guess what? There's great news. There's an upside to human potential. It's not all what's wrong with you. <laughs> and they were stunned and totally disinterested. But Richie was there. And they told me that if I wanted a successful career in science, doing this was a terrible way to begin. Uh, and they told me that after I 
uh, spent three months in India and Sri Lanka with Dan after my second year of graduate school. But when it first began, uh, my very first day of graduate school, I took my first course and I knew about Dan before I got to Harvard because he published a few articles in this really obscure journal called the Journal of Transpersonal Psychology. I think Not it's... one of our top-ranked journals. It doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> exactly. um, but these were articles on meditation that I had read as an undergraduate. And so I knew Dan was there. This was before the internet. I had no idea what he looked like. I saw no pictures of him. And I sat down, and there was someone that sat right next to me, and I turned to him and I said, you're Dan Goldman. He knew that because I was wearing these outrageous corduroy pajamas, which were the only pants I had. They'd been made in India. They were dirt cheap. I was a graduate student, couldn't afford anything else. My hair was like Jimi Hendrix, if you can believe it now. So, and, so, and I got back after, from India dressed the same way that Dan was dressed. <laughs> and I go into a seminar at Harvard on psychopathology, clinical psychology, and the professor in this graduate seminar looking directly at me, said, you know, there's some evidence to indicate that a person's clothing habits are a good indication of their psychiatric status. <laughs> Schizophrenia, I think he's talking about. That was what it was like when we first began. Yeah. It was a very hostile environment. And how many of you were there that were interested in this stuff? I know John Kabat-Zinn was also a So he was a third friend. So John Kabat-Zinn, some of you may know of his work with mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR. It's in hospitals around the world. But back then, he was just a graduate student. He had done molecular biology. But we met, and we're all interested in meditation. And the three of us did a project together, which was uh, a Swami had come to town. We'll call him Swami X. Swami, who is that exactly? Swami X. I know, but who is that exactly? <laughs> and uh, I'm not telling. But this Swami wanted to be studied by scientists at Harvard. So we commandeered a lab and- uh, We had to convince our <laughs> professors that yeah. they should allocate valuable laboratory time to studying this Swami. So that was one problem. But the other was, this was in the days of biofeedback when people would get a signal of their heart rate or something and learn to control it. This Swami X claimed, I can control my autonomic nervous system with no feedback. So we got him in the lab and we asked him to raise his heart rate and he lowered it. And we asked him to lower his heart rate and he raised it. And then he did a special thing for us which he called dog samadhi, uh, which is otherwise known as atrial fibrillation. It's not, <laughs> not a great talent to have, you can die from that. So that, that was our first understanding because that you can hype research on meditation. Afterward, wherever he spoke, he said, and scientists at Harvard have studied my brain. <laughs> Which would say what we found. <laughs> yeah. So uh, one of our motives for writing this book, Altered Traits, is there a book here? There is a book. Yeah. So, Altered Traits, right. ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, thank you. Uh, was to put together the best research. There's now 6,000 peer-reviewed articles. There's more than 1,000 a year now. When we did our dissertations, there were two. Do you remember that? I do. Both really bad. And our dissertations, by the way, would not meet the standards to get in this book today. Would you agree? Totally. Yeah. So standards have, have ratcheted upward. And we wanted to put together in one place the evidence that, you know, meditation actually is of value. It's not all hype. Uh, there's good research. And in fact, it shows real benefits. This is, this is a tough 
We actually met as meditators. That's true. And so I'm, I'm looking at this whole process from a slightly skewed angle, where I'm not really interested in the data. I'm interested in my own personal experience. And I know there's no way that you could have the energy to go through this process of, of finding a way to, to bring Western science and Eastern sciences together in a way that, that is definable, measurable, just to find that way for them to communicate to each other, unless you had had your own experiences. And I don't know if you want to share something of that, just what that has to be the springboard for you. It's not well, just one, academic for you guys. Yeah, one, one really poignant uh, example of the predicament that this brings is in 2005, um, we played a role in, an important role in having the Dalai Lama speak at the Society for Neuroscience, uh, the most prestigious organization of neuroscientists in the world. I, and in Washington. In Washington, D.C. I was there. Yeah. yeah. So there was an article, I don't know if you remember this, but there was an article in the New York Times about him speaking at this meeting. Uh, it was on the front page of the New York Times a little bit before because there was a petition uh, that was uh, started of scientists objecting to His Holiness the Dalai Lama speaking at this meeting of neuroscientists. Now, the fact that the first 400 people who signed it were Chinese scientists probably had something to do with <laughs> this. But in any case, um, in this article in the New York Times, it also talked about some of the research that was going on and specifically singled out some of the research that we were doing in our lab. And it said, Davidson has admitted in public that he himself meditates. Scandalous. Oh my God. <laughs> and how can he possibly be objective in this research if he himself meditates? And that would be like, I had such a great time with this. It would be like telling a cardiologist who studies the effect of physical exercise on the heart that they can't exercise for the rest of their life because they're, they're studying it. Or, or for that matter, a scientist who studies perception should stop perceiving. <laughs> so uh, it's, you know, we think of this as obligatory, that if you're going to do scientific research in this area, you, you really need to have your own practice. You know, the, the Thurman, I think, is, is one of the guys, Robert Thurman, professor at, uh, at Columbia, he often translates the word yogi as yogi scientists. And from the Eastern point of view, these great yogis in a tradition of thousands of years of refining their understanding and experience of consciousness, of what mind is, nature of mind. What is nature of mind? And, and how, does that, how does that interact with our sense of ourselves as a separate being? Is, in fact, this a separate being or not? But, but they didn't have the machines to measure these things. It was a completely subjective experience for them. Now, the guides in the lineage were people who were great experts at this. Uh, you know, would be the, the great geniuses of, of this type of meditation, that type of meditation, who would be able to, to walk them through the experience and make sure that it was a valid experience based on the tradition and also what they wanted in the process of the meditative sequencing. Um, we don't have that here. Our science doesn't do that. It has to be measurable by machines and provable. And this is, I'm most interested, your pioneers, in doing this. Mind and Life Institute is, is pioneering of how do you bring these two different sciences together? And is there a razor's edge that they do meet? Well, I think it's, it's really important to acknowledge that 
you know, we feel in our hearts because of our own experience that this works. It does something advantageous, as you know. But it was the Dalai Lama who said, actually straight to Richie in a Mind and Life meeting. And by the way, Mind and Life is a wonderful organization that the Dalai Lama co-founded to, to create a dialogue between spiritual traditions and science. And he said to Richie, you know, our tradition has many methods for handling disturbing, destructive emotions. Please take them outside the religious context, bring them into the lab, study them as rigorously as you can, and if they're of value, spread them as widely as you can. So that's really what this book is about. Well, I'm, I'm taken with that. I think in your first chapters, you talk about deep meditation and, and, and wide meditation. Yeah, so you there, want to speak to that issue? Yeah. So there, we see four levels of meditation. One is, the you could say, the professional, the yogi, the full-time nun or monk in a monastic setting who is a professional meditator. So uh, Richie was able to bring people like that to his lab in Wisconsin one by one, uh, and he found remarkable effects from it. But that's a very small slice of people. Then there's the next level out, which are the centers that you see here. Uh, there's New York Insight, or there's uh, many lamas who are teaching, and they're bringing uh, the tradition to the West, and they leave some stuff behind, but they reach more people. And then there's the next remove, which is like John Kabat-Zinn, mindfulness-based stress reduction. It takes it outside that spiritual context and looks at the benefits. His method is used very widely in hospitals, for example, in clinics, because if you have a chronic disease like arthritis, you're living with pain every day, they can't help you, it changes your relationship to that and you have a better quality of life. So that reaches an even wider group. They don't go so deep. And then there's the widest group. It's like, uh, you know, we're teaching mindfulness uh, in human, you know, HR in our company is bringing mindfulness in, or here's a mindfulness app. And that actually goes to scale, but it's a, not nearly the depth that you get at that first level. Well, Dan, you, you say, and we've, we've talked about this today and at other times, clearly, you, if, if people can be helped, you want them to have the tools to help them in any way that exactly. you can. Exactly. Um, the, the most exciting part of this, I think, as, a, as meditators ourselves and coming out of a tradition, is, is to make the largest possible change one can make which is radically change our whole idea of self and other, the dualism that we usually live in, our afflictive emotions, and the connection that you guys are seeing in the data of there's actually molecular changes that go on in the mind, in the brain. Richie should speak. And I, Richie, please speak yeah, to that. So, so this is really the area that is particularly exciting because it's not so much about proving that meditation may be helpful. It's really understanding how meditation is affecting the mind and the brain. And, and in a permanent way. And in a permanent way, which is really what the title of the book is meant to convey. Altered Traits is the notion that enduring change is actually possible. There was a book that this is playing on. I don't know if probably all of you remember Charles Tate's book, Tart. Altered States of- Tart. Tart, sorry. Yeah. Of uh, Altered States of Consciousness. No. So, altered traits. You have to be of a certain age to remember that. <laughs> well, that's why I was happy and, and there it's were only a white hairs out here that should know this. It's only a rarefied group of people, and Altered yeah. States of Consciousness was this edited academic volume that um, I still can picture with a white cover sitting in my office, um, but was revolutionary yeah. when it first Very was influential. Released. But what we're discovering today is that 
there are two major mechanisms that we're learning more and more about. One is neuroplasticity and the other is epigenetics. Neuroplasticity is the idea that the brain changes in response to experience. This is very recent, is it Very recent. Like completely recent, like within a decade and a half. Last last 10, 15 years, exactly. And neuroplasticity happens all the time, wittingly or unwittingly. And most of the time, neuroplasticity is happening unwittingly. Most of the time, our brains are being shaped by forces around us about which we have little awareness. So if you binge watch Game of Thrones, is that neuroplasticity? <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's... Um, Sorry about that. But, uh, it's, a, it's a sobering reflection because uh, we are just continuously being shaped in this way. And epigenetics is the science of how genes are regulated. And we're all born with a fixed complement of base pairs that constitute our DNA. And for the most part, that's not going to change. But what will change is the extent to which different genes are turned on and turned off. Mm. And so you can think of genes having little volume controls that go from low to high. And that varies a lot. And it turns out that those variations are really meaningful for health. And one of the things we found is just a couple of years ago, we published a paper showing that if we bring meditators to the laboratory, and these are folks like us who, who are not professional meditators, who have day jobs, um, and have them practice for a full day, and we just take a blood sample in the morning and then in the late afternoon, after a period of, say, six or seven hours of practice, we actually can see changes in gene expression and in these what we call epigenetic marks that are observable. uh, And we were specifically looking at changes in gene expression for genes that are involved in inflammation, which is an important domain in many chronic illnesses. Uh, And so uh, these kinds of data suggest that we can produce enduring change in ways that were unthinkable. Richie, what was the change? Was it good or bad? So what we found is that the genes for inflammation were downregulated. Downregulated means less inflamed, just to translate for you. He's my scientific translator. (laughs) Yeah. So it was good. Yeah, it was good. So what about neuroplasticity? So neuroplasticity uh, is not not necessarily good or bad. Uh, Neuroplasticity uh, uh, is happening all the time. And if we, there are certain things that we can do to stimulate increased neuroplasticity. But if we increase neuroplasticity... Well, define that a little more. Just give people a good definition of that. So um, the extent to which the brain changes varies across people. It's not all the same. And it also changes over the course of development. We know, for example, that very young kids can learn a second language much more easily when at a certain age. They can learn a musical instrument. So that's what, a form of plasticity. That's a form of plasticity. And that's a sensitive period in development. Mm -hmm. It actually may be that kindness and compassion have a similar sensitive period. And if we Mm -hmm. nurture kids Mm -hmm. uh, during that period, it can be enormously- Is there any indication that there is a prime period for learning this? Uh, There's some indication. We have developed in our center a curriculum that we call the kindness curriculum, which is designated for preschool kids, kids four and five years of age, which by the way, we've just this week uh, have a free public release of this curriculum, so anyone who wants can go to our center website mm. and download the curriculum. Uh, and, um, uh, and what we find is that 
kids four and five years of age find this really natural. Mm. It's, it, it just comes very easily to them. And we see big time changes over the course of just 12 weeks of a semester where we're introducing this for 90 minutes a week. Do you find conversely there's a period or an age where this is not teachable, that there is no plasticity? No, that's the good news. Plasticity happens until we die. It's never too late. Never too late. And, that's great. Um, and in fact, there's some evidence to suggest that one of the thing, one of the mechanisms of plasticity is actually impacting cellular and neural aging. And there's evidence to suggest that with more practice, mechanisms of cellular aging slow down and also brain aging mm. slows down. One of the things we share in the book is that one of the great lamas that um, all of us know, uh, a lama by the name of Mingyur Rinpoche, who has given us permission to use his name, uh, was one of the participants in the research that we've done in our lab. And he's what we would call an Olympic-level meditator. Uh, he is probably devoted around 75,000 hours over the course of his lifetime in formal practice. But he had done three three-year retreats before he was Did his four and a half something. Years. Right. It was insane. I mean, the number of hours that he's put in. When he was a hours. kid, he said his favorite game was to go to a cave and pretend to meditate. He didn't know what it was then. <laughs> That kind of kid. Yeah. yeah that, so Mingyur just finished recently a four-and-a-half-year retreat, and we had him come to our lab very soon after the four-and-a-half-year retreat. And we looked at parameters. There are objective parameters you can look at in the brain to estimate the age of a brain. And he was 41 years of age when we tested him then. And we compared him to a large normative database of people between the ages of 25 and 45. He was in the 99th percentile, showing the youngest brain in this group of 1,000 people. Yeah. Uh, and so it's not that the brain is not changing and still aging. It is. We, we actually show that. But the slope of the change is much different than what you see in a person who's not been practicing. So are you saying that meditation might keep your brain younger, longer? It seems that... The it reminds me of something Ashley Montague said. Um, he said, I'd like to die young at a very late age. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So uh, there's, there's a very important part of this story. First of all, the neuroplasticity means the research that Richie's done shows that meditation changes the brain, actually maybe reshapes it, strengthens circuitry in positive ways. It was not always so easy, I just want to mention. In 1992, Richie and a group of people schlepped to Dharamsala, India, in the foothills of the Himalayas, tons of equipment. 5,000 pounds. In those days, it wasn't miniaturized. And it was by train at that yes, point, Yes, exactly. Well, and this then, was not an easy place to get to. Yeah, and he, they had a letter from the Dalai Lama to yogis who were up in the hills around there, and a guide to find the yogis. And the letter said, please cooperate with these scientists. They want to study you meditating. And they went to yogi after yogi, each of whom said no. Right? That's right. And for a very smart reason. They said, we don't know what you measure. And if, you, if what we do doesn't show up on your machines as any good, it might discourage people. So they wouldn't do it. But there was also a thing about taking blood, that in terms of some of the tantric practices that they do, changing the, the blood pressure in the blood actually 
uh, interrupts their yogic process. And we didn't take any blood samples in that trip. This was just it, brain research. Yeah, but actually there's a great story that um, is part of that, uh, that excursion. We had 5,000 pounds of equipment. We weren't able to use any of it to test any of these yogis. So the last day we were there, and the Dalai Lama asked us if we would please give a talk to these young monks at the Namgyal Monastery. And we said, of course, we'd be happy to give a talk. And we thought, rather than giving a dry academic talk, we had all this equipment. We might as well use it to show them how we record this. So Francisco Varela, who is one of the co-founders of the Mind and Life Institute, great neuroscientist and also a great meditator, um, student of Mingyur Rinpoche's father, actually, Tulko Ergen Rinpoche, um, Francisco was with us, and we decided we put an electrode cap on Francisco. So we put, you know, this funny-looking cap with sensors coming out, all these wires. And in those days, it took a lot of time to set it up. It took about 45 minutes. And then finally, we had all of the electrodes in place, and the brain waves were being displayed on these clunky laptops that we had at those, that time. And sort of we parted ways, and there were 200 monks sitting dutifully on cushions on the floor, and they just burst out laughing, <laughs> just hysterically laughing. And we thought they were laughing because Francisco looked kind of funny with this electrode cap on. It turned out that they're laughing about something far more serious. What they're laughing about is that we were talking about compassion and we were putting electrodes on the head and not on the heart. Yeah. And that, it took us 20 years to process that and to really learn what it is that they were referring to. Mind and heart uh, with the Tibetans is almost interchangeable. And if they talk about mind, they point here. Um, I remember His Holiness saying, and, and almost all of His Holiness's work saying, that we, by nature, are loving and kind and empathic. We are taught not to be in our lives. Our environment teaches us that way. But I think it's one of the reasons that these, this neuroplasticity in terms of positive emotions and really helpful emotions and joyous emotions, it's not that hard to access. Well, it actually, will be there. We found very good news. When we looked at the, the best studies on kindness, loving kindness, uh, which is a meditation that's become more and more popular, uh, we found that the, the brain or, or the mind seems to be prepared to learn to love better. It, for beginners, even, uh, the outcomes of being more generous, paying more attention to people around you, things like that, happen very quickly, mm. more quickly than with other aspects that, that we measured. So uh, it seems uh, that we're primed for love, which is wonderful yeah. finding. We also found for beginners uh, things like if you multitask, who doesn't multitask these days? You're doing one thing and then, oh, I better check my email, look on Facebook, it's, this is the way life goes. Um, if you're concentrating this much on the first thing and then you do that and that and that and that, when you go back to that thing, your concentration is down here. Unless you've done just 10 minutes of mindfulness, that buffers you, brings you, leaves your concentration high. So we find that the benefits like that come right at the beginning. And then the longer you do it, the uh, more hours you put into it over time, the more benefits you get. Now, you're talking about meditation, as, using a very broad term, meditation. Do you want to go into more detail about the kinds of meditation, the practices themselves that you were looking at, what the aim of those practices are? And 
maybe a little bit about how they work, what, what the yogic process is that you were evaluating? Well, they're, they're, in terms of the scientific research, there are two kinds of meditation practice that have been studied the most extensively. Uh, one is uh, basic mindfulness kinds of practices. And when we talk about mindfulness practices, we are uh, speaking about practices that uh, invite a person to bring awareness to their bodies, to their thoughts, to their emotions, to external sensations, uh, and to know that they're aware. Uh, there's a, a certain quality of knowing that seems to be intrinsic to our capacity to be aware and recognizing that that knowing is really what these mindfulness practices are about. And it turns out that these simple mindfulness practices, even practice for just a short amount of time, uh, seem to improve aspects of our attention. They also improve what scientists have called meta-awareness, which is the ability to recognize that you are aware. And one of the ways that you can think about this, we've all had the experience of being in a movie theater and being really engrossed in a movie. Uh, and to the extent we're, that we're not even aware that we're sitting in a theater. Uh, we're so wrapped up in the plot. But we also could be sitting in a movie theater, totally attentive to the movie, but in the background recognizing that we're sitting in a theater. And it's that background recognition that is seems to be something that we call meta-awareness that's cultivated with these simple mindfulness practices that turns out to provide a kind of leverage to allow a person to uh, better regulate their emotions, to not get ensnared, not get hijacked. Not to identify so much. Not to identify, yeah. And that's something really key. And then the second class of practices that have been studied extensively are these practices that are designed to cultivate qualities of kindness, of love, compassion. Uh, and um, uh, again, the, the, one of the amazing things is that you see changes after, there's data showing changes after just eight minutes. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that those changes are going to last. But what it does show, as Danny was suggesting, is that our minds are primed for that. We're, we're ready for it. It's now. right under the, under the hood. And all we need is a little bit of a wake up. And it's there. We're all leaning towards love. All of us, and it's just, it's right there for us. I know in my own process of, of meditative practice, it's certainly, um, it does build up over many years. And for me, it's many decades. And I can't say that every meditation was a great meditation, but when I look at the process of these many years of doing it, certainly there's a different quality that I can locate as, as myself that is not identifying with world the world that I saw before, the emotions as they would be generated. Um, and, and obviously being around the Olympic beings who have perfected these meditative processes, uh, what an encouragement that is to know that that is possible. If you put in the work, you can do it. You will have those results. And I think that's the most important thing I'm getting from the research you guys are doing, is that it is available. It's not like you're inventing love. You're not inventing compassion, uh, empathy, um, joy. It's there. It's part of our being. We just don't access it very well. 
Yeah, and in many ways, you know, we think about this in, the, in, the, in a way that's similar to the way scientists think about language. Mm -hmm. We all come into the world with a biological propensity for language, but in order for that propensity to be expressed, we need to be nurtured in a normal linguistic community. There are case studies. You have to hear of, words. You have to hear words, and there are case studies of feral children raised in the wild. They don't develop language normally. And similarly, with these basic qualities of awareness and love, we're built to express these qualities, but they're seeds, they need nurturing. Mm -hmm. And these practices really are not about creating anything de novo, they're about nurturing something that's already there. Taking that even further, I mean, this is, meditative process is, is essentially an individual private process one is going through. Do you have any studies based on communities and what that does, having communities who are m moving themselves in this direction and how that might jumpstart or quicken the process? Well, well, you know, the, the classical traditions all say, you know, it's better if you hang out with people who are like-minded, who are trying the same thing, than if you're hanging out with people who are basically dissing what you're doing. And I think that the encouragement of having a community uh, that um, not only sees what you see, but wants what you want, is really invaluable. Yeah, and the research certainly shows that the community aspect is really important. And in fact, in some of the early stages, uh, it turns out that some of the benefit of things like mindfulness-based stress reduction, which are done in a group, where you go to a class mm -hmm. once a week and there's you know, 15 or so people who are sharing a lot and there's a sense of cohesion and community that arises in the group, it turns out that the group process in careful studies that have been done is actually a really important ingredient, even more important in certain ways than the specific mindfulness techniques. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and there's something about community which is really key. Has John Kabat-Zinn, I, mean, I was actually gonna get into him when we saw him a few days ago, has he found a threshold of the work he's doing that, I mean, it is a broad kind of thing he's doing. It's, it's the wide version. Right. Is, does he, has he uh, gotten to a threshold where it can't, get it to that next level? Or is he finding within his community people who want to go into the deeper aspect of meditative process? Yeah, I think Johnny, who has probably taught tens of thousands of people, either him or his students or students yeah, yeah. of students, uh, maybe hundreds of thousands by now, uh, finds that there's a certain subgroup of people who get a taste and want to go deeper. Mm -hmm. But it, not, most people don't. You know, he intentionally, he started out in Worcester, Mass, and he wanted anybody from Worcester, which is a pretty, like, you know, Working class American town. Yeah. What? Working class. Working class town. He wanted anybody to be able to do this practice. So he came up with a set of very effective meditations that aren't necessarily called meditation. But these are people who had medical problems, highly motivated to do something, because they're not being helped by medicine anymore. Uh, and it, he found a way of getting this uh, in a package that people could accept. Well, one of the important things that we don't know about mindfulness-based stress reduction, for example, is we don't know the percentage of people who take an MBSR course, a two-month course, and then are still meditating even a year later uh, or two years later. My suspicion, to be honest, uh, about this is that it's probably a small fraction. Uh, and I think that one of the insights that we glean from the scientific research is that small amounts of practice 
done many times yeah. over the course of the day may be particularly helpful for getting people started, mm -hmm. uh, taking it in really sort of bite-sized chunks and not creating unrealistic expectations mm -hmm. for oneself, but rather coming up with a formula that is more likely to guarantee success. One of the things that we're investigating in our own center now is when a person starts with, with a particular kind of program that we're working with, we tell them, what is the, the, the amount of time that you think you can do this every single day without a break for 30 days, even if it's just one minute a day? That's okay. Mm -hmm. But what we want you to do is to do it every day for 30 days and then see how you're doing. Check in. And, uh, and if it's valuable, extend it. Uh, and, and that is a way to maximize the likelihood that a person actually would be successful rather than having a goal to do 45 minutes a day where they might do it for a few days or a few weeks. What do they actually tell you? Do they tell you five minutes, 10 minutes, 15? Uh, it, it's typically under 15 minutes. Yeah. And does that grow naturally or do they stick to that? Well, we're, we're just starting this, so we don't know yet. But you know, our aspiration is that it will grow. Mm. Um, but we don't really know from you know, a, a scientific perspective. Talk to me a little bit about where you are. You can't do this kind of work unless you have some vision of where you're going. Where are you on the curve now of the voyage that you're taking? And what is the next big step or two that's going to take you further along this, this kind of studies that you're doing? Well, I, I would speak as someone who's doing meditation practice. I'd like to do a lot more, actually. I'd like to step back. My, uh, my, uh, a lot of the things I do are speaking to different groups. My agent is here in the room, uh, Carlton and... Uh, Lucy, and uh, I want to continue that, Carlton and Lucy, but I'd like to do less, thank you. <laughs> uh, and do they more have the meditation. second floor of their house they're trying to redo right now, so. so yeah, after that's paid for, then we'll talk. please, thank you. Right. Yeah. Uh, but generally, you know, that's, that's me personally, but Richie, you've got a whole, um, you've got a hundred people in your lab. Yeah, Richie invented this stuff. Now, he's being extremely humble here, but this is a guy who invented... He, he built the field called contemplative neuroscience. All that stuff you see where llamas are being tested and the wires coming out of that's all in his lab. And you've got hundreds of people working. Well, we have about 100 people now. And actually, Barb Matheson, who's our executive director of our center, is here somewhere in the audience. Um, and our aspiration, we, we have big aspirations at this point in time. And... In the back of my mind, I hear His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who is telling me, seven billion people! There are seven billion people! <laughs> That's not his accent, by the way. <laughs> I just want you to know. Not even close. <laughs> Maybe you can help me with the accent. <laughs> so it, we are really trying to figure out ways to bring this out into the world in, in unconventional using unconventional methods. And one of the things that's clear, and it certainly comes with all kinds of complications and limitations, but one of the things that's clear is if this kind of work is gonna be deployed at scale, it's gonna have to use technology in some way, shape, or form. And exactly how to do that, we're not sure, but we are committed to trying, and we feel like we have a moral obligation to try. The world needs this kind of practice. I think most people would agree. But and your point of view is to prove its value 
and therefore bring people in? Well, that's one of the things we're doing. We also, as part of our center, we just started a nonprofit corporation where we are taking the insights that we glean from the laboratory and turning them into products that we're actually going to disseminate in the world. Tell them about Tenacity. The, Richie loaned me a beta, pre-beta version of a video game for kids that strengthens attention. It's, uh, it's a way to watch your breath. You take a, it's on an iPad, and you, you uh, tap it for every breath, and you tap it twice on the ninth breath or something like that. And if you get it right, uh, flowers bloom in this desert scene. It's kind of very reinforcing. And I gave it to um, our, our grandchildren. Yeah, thanks. You know, it was a perfect uh, focus group because there was a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old and 16-year-old. And uh, they loved it. So I hope you bring it out soon. So these are some of the things that we're doing. So it's, uh, we'll see whether it's successful, but I think we need to try. Well, this is, uh, there's some questions here. And the first one actually dovetails perfectly. Uh, aside from uh, meditation, is there another way to cure cell phone addiction? <laughs> You're looking at me. <laughs> Whoever wants to answer it. Yeah. So does anybody not have one of these with them? Uh, I, I was talking to a friend of ours that we mentioned before, John Kabat-Zinn, and he said, I have a student who directed the team that designed the iPhone. And he said, we were all in our 20s, and we decided to make it as addictive as we could. Yeah. He said, now I am a parent, and I really regret that. <laughs> because to think about it, today's kids are growing up not knowing a day you could not have an electronic device with a screen on it that would be entrancing. And I think what it means is that uh, we are a more distracted species than ever in human history and that we need more help with not letting ourselves... You know what I, I, I'm aware of that the most is in elevators. You know how I used to get in an elevator and everyone didn't know everyone, it's all strangers, and, you, and you're standing sure, there. Yeah. <laughs> Don't know if you should talk to someone or nod or whatever, but everyone is like this now. No one is making eye contact. There's no, there's no sense of social obligation exactly. anymore. So I'm worried about that because, you know, I've done a lot of work with social and emotional intelligence, and these are lines of development from birth on. And the way you learn naturally uh, how to manage yourself, how to be a decent human being, how to empathize, is with people. It's engaging. Yeah. And so kids are spending hours and hours less engaging other people. And I worry that... I feel that we need to be more proactive, for example, in schools, and give kids lessons in kindness, lessons in empathy, and managing their impulsive feelings, because they're not getting as much in life. And the distraction is one part of that, absolutely. Well, there was one of my teachers talked about, about uh, technology um, fasting, and just putting that stuff away for a day. You know, with a traditional Sunday or Saturday that, right. uh, okay, we won't do that for a day. And we'll have a meal with each other without the television on or the cell phones or anything else. How novel. Hmm? How novel. <laughs> Is there a minimum time you have to practice meditation in order to reap the benefits? 
Richie? I, absolutely not. I think you can see benefits with really short amounts of practice. And the data show eight minutes for someone who's never meditated before is enough to produce a change in the brain and a change on objective measures. Now, again, it doesn't mean it but will last. But eight minutes for how long? Well, so you can see transient changes in eight minutes. And it won't become a trait unless you continue to practice. And practice is something... Is this the 10,000 hours thing no, we've talked about no, before? I, no, we, you, see, you see trait effects after a couple of thousand hours, which is really a modest level of practice. But there is a dose-response effect, that the more you do it, the stronger and the wider array of benefits. how permanent it is, how it becomes a trait. Uh, absolutely. It becomes part of yeah. your being. Absolutely. There, yeah. was, there was an article published uh, a number of years ago in The New Yorker that, that is, is so pertinent to this. It profiled the lives of three people. One was Yo-Yo Ma, the cellist. The other was Wayne Gretzky, the hockey player. And the third was a guy named Ed Wilson, who's a famous neurosurgeon in California. Uh, at UCSF, and these people are the best in the world at what they do, and it asks, what do they have in common? Practice, practice, practice. So I think that there's ultimately no substitute for that. None, I don't think there is either. I mean, anyone who asks me about meditation, there's a question here, it's, you have to do it. And we are such lazy beings, but find a way that you do it every day, at the same time, you sit on your cushion, it becomes part of your eating ritual, your ritual of taking a shower, brushing your teeth, that it's, it is who you are. And, and the benefit of my own experience and the people around me, you definitely have a permanent experience that, that is, uh, opens up in ways that you never would have expected or dreamed. Now, there's, there's a, this is an interesting one. I have never meditated. I'm 61. I'm interested. Step one. So uh, this reminds me of uh, PS 112. It's on 122nd Street in Spanish Harlem. Seven-year-olds. Uh, every day they have a practice where, or, or time where they have belly buddies. Belly buddies means you go to your cubby, you get your favorite stuffed animal, you find a place to lie down on a rug, you put it on your belly, and you watch it rise on the in-breath, yeah. fall on the out-breath. That's for seven-year-olds. It's also for 61-year-olds. You don't need the stuffed animal. Just start. And there's, there's a hundred ways to start. There's books. There's apps. There's, uh, you could start right now. In fact, let's do it for a minute. Why don't we do it? I actually asked Matthew to do this when we, we did one so of these. To actually chairs. meditate. Yeah. yeah. Okay, here we go. Just sit up in a dignified position so you don't fall asleep. And close your eyes and bring your attention to your breath. Don't try to control your breath. Just watch the natural inflow and outflow. Breathing in, breathing out. Stay with the full in-breath, the full out-breath, the pause between and the next breath. And when your mind wanders, just notice that it wandered and bring it back to your breath and start with the next one. Full in-breath, the full out-breath. And now you can open your eyes. That's the basic instruction. 
Richard, stop meditating. <laughs> no, I was just saying that when I, when I started, my first teachers were Zen. And it became very important in early Zen training to think about this place called the Hara, which is a, it's a chakra just below the navel, but it's three or four finger widths below the navel and towards the back. And if you can, that's also where your abdomen is. And as you're breathing through the abdomen, is that's, that's where you put your mind, is right there. And you'll see that your mind will wander and you'll be up in thoughts up in here. Bring it right back down. Uh, and you'll start to activate this very powerful energy source in, in this area. So when you're breathing, think of it from here, not, not from up in your head or any place, really from here. And it will start to settle. I find that it settles the mind much quicker. But that is an incredibly powerful source right here of being, this area right here. As Richie said, you're never too old. Who's the, you want to tell you the 61-year-old who gave the card? Is he here? I just turned 68. There he's back there. It's a woman or a man? Woman. It's a woman. Great. So this is your, your first lesson in meditation. Congratulations. Okay. Now, you master meditators, how do I stop my mind from wandering during meditation? Oh. Now, who said you had to stop your mind from wandering? Said what? I said, who said you have to stop your mind from wandering? I think that's a common misconception. The mind wanders. That's what it does. It's, uh, you know, the, there's a wonderful study that was done at Harvard. They gave people an iPhone app, and it rang people at random times of the day, and it asked two questions. What are you doing now, and what are you thinking about? And to the extent those don't match, your mind has wandered. And they found, on average, people's mind wander about 50% of the time. The worst, the 90% or so, is commuting, sitting in front of a video monitor, and I'm sorry to say this, at work. So, of course, the least was during romantic moments. But you have to ask, who would answer an app at a time like that? <laughs> so anyway, this is what the data claim to show. So the mind want is called the default mode. It's what the mind does when nothing else is going on. Right, Richie? And we know exactly what circuitry is involved. The idea is not to stop your mind from wandering. The idea is to notice when it wandered, to be mindful. Oh, my mind wandered. I don't have to follow that thought. I'll go back to the practice, to the meditation. Yeah, so in, in many ways, the essence of meditation is awareness. And we're not trying to fix anything. We're not trying to change anything. We're not trying to block anything. We're not trying to stop thoughts. It's simply being aware and recognizing this very basic quality of awareness that we all have. And simply through repeated interrogation of our own mind, that becomes more and more familiar. And as it becomes more and more familiar, the mind begins to settle. But that's really what this kind of developmental process is about. Mm. Well, that process is, is twofold in, in terms of where the, the process can go. And these early stages of just beginning following the breath is, is essentially taming the mind from being crazy and taking us places we don't particularly want to go. But it's just, there is a certain amount of concentration mm -hmm. and, and will uh, associated with that. 
uh, I think once, once that concentration has become second nature of focusing on one thing, then you can use that like a, like a wild horse. Once you've tamed that horse, you can do tricks with it, you can do amazing things with it. It will take you places which are, are very, uh, sometimes quite complicated and, and sometimes just purely delicate, that the mind itself is so close to us, the vast mind is so close that we can't see it, but it's right there and it's so subtle, that difference between kind of lost in the world we normally are and the flip side of that which is vast and open and unbounded, no center, no dimension. It's, it's, it can't even be described, but it's, it's, it's right there, right, right there, so subtle, right, right, right there, every second. Could we study your brain? <laughs> <laughs> How do I stop? This is, I'm not sure what this is about, but why the rift between transcendental meditation and mindfulness until recently? The rift between TM and mindfulness. Apparently there was a rift. And it's over. That's really good news. So TM is, um, that was my first meditation. And it was mine too. Yeah, it's a great meditation practice. And it comes from India uh, and uses uh, what are called meaningless sounds. They're actually Sanskrit mantras that you, you repeat silently in your mind. And when your mind what was wanders, your mantra? What? What was your mantra? <laughs> You're not supposed to tell, yeah. but everyone knows. I, I actually didn't like it that much, but anyway, that's a different story. <laughs> so you, you bring your mind, when it wanders in TM, you gently start the mantra again, which is another way of noticing. And in mindfulness, which is what we just did, you use the breath or some neutral anchor uh, in the same way. So they start out uh, as very similar practices. And, and good news, there's no rift. I don't know. Any more you guys want to talk about? Uh, you know, that was pretty, pretty good. We covered a lot of territory. I think you covered a lot of territory. Yeah. What I like about this book, let me just talk about the book. Okay. What I like about the book is I've, I've, as I said, I've known these guys a long time. I learned so much about them as people in this. And it's, it's not a wonky book. It's kind of an exciting book of how these guys got to where they are now and how important it is. And... I think they're very aware of how pioneering this is. I mean, we didn't even have translations from the Tibetan until maybe 15 or 20 years ago, really decent trend. This is the beginning of a whole east to west process. Um, we've had His Holiness the Dalai Lama who's been really important to that. And also in terms of science, there's been no one like His Holiness the Dalai Lama who has embraced Western science and understands um, how meaningful that is to communicate the depth of what the Buddha discovered, the, the extraordinary revolution that, and courage it took to get there, of what he was able to experience. And he went through the same process. Once he, had, he became enlightened, he had no idea how he could communicate what had happened to him. That's right. And the, the story is, is that the, the Dakinis and the angels, they came to him and begged him. And he, he really was, was at a loss. And he started a very simple way to explain what had happened to him. He called it the Four Noble Truths. But then he started to expand really what happened to him. And it was this, the, the nature of, of mind itself and emptiness 
that the mind is empty of inherent existence. This whole thing is empty of inherent existence. Um, His Holiness understands the nature of that is not really Buddhism. It's a revolution in way beyond Buddhism. And it can't be explained in a rational way, in a conceptual way. It, It can only be experienced. And this is one of those pioneering steps along the way to help a lot of people get closer to having that extraordinary experience. Um, I think people will look back on this. First of all, I think it's going to be a really successful book. I like the book. It's smart and it's personal and uh, it has great humility um, and, and I think it's really going to help people. But I think it's going to be one of those books that along the road of other books that come along and other books you guys will do will be one of the really important ones. So I highly recommend Richard, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92iondemand.org.